0: From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at GraceChurchNash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now, here's this week's message. One of the reasons why I love to talk about baptism is because when you talk about baptism, you talk about the essence of the gospel, what was accomplished through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. Just like when you talk about communion, you have to talk about the essence of the gospel, the blood that was shed for the new covenant. And so baptism and communion go hand in hand. I may mention that later, but baptism is so important, not just for those who are Going to be baptized, or considering that, praying about that, but also for all of us who have been baptized. We'll read it in just a little bit, but in Romans chapter 6, Paul writes this astounding chapter of the Bible about the power of baptism, summarizing a lot of the key components of the gospel. And he's not writing to a people who are about to be baptized, he's writing to a people who were already b- baptized, and he's saying to them, remember what happened in you when that happened. And And build your life on that reality. Because sometimes we have a tendency to forget the full power of the gospel that we believe in. So, this morning is not just being a forerunner for what's coming in the middle of March. This morning is about bringing all of our hearts back down to the foundational, ground level truth of what happens in us when we believe in the gospel and when we act on that faith, because baptism is an act of faith in the gospel we believe in. So let me begin with this big idea, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Again, we'll get eventually to John chapter 1, but I'm probably going to reference and read quite a few verses before we get there to help sort of build this context out. Then we will get to the heart of the matter in John chapter 1. So let me begin with this idea. Baptism is the beginning of new creation. Baptism is the beginning of new creation. How do we get that idea? Let's build some framework first. So one of the things we need to know about the Bible is this, that everything God is going to do in the future, He has already done in His Son, Jesus, or through His Son, Jesus. Everything God's ultimately going to accomplish at the end of the age and in the age to come, he's already accomplished through his son. For example, we live in this odd kingdom reality where things are both already and not yet. And Jesus explained it this way to a woman in John chapter 4, known as the woman at the well. He said, the time is coming and now is when those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And Jesus captured that already not yet tension in reality because he says the time is coming. It's in the future, but the time is now. The time is coming and now is. Why? Because everything God's going to do, he's already done through Jesus. We see that central reality when we think about the presence of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. In Revelation chapter 21 verse number 3 we see this loud voice from heaven. I love that it's a loud voice because it's emphasizing the... the um, the magnitude of this reality of God's presence filling the earth. And here's what the loud voice from heaven says in Revelation 21, verse number three. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. G- the tabernacle of God is with men once again, because that's God's ultimate reality. That's God's ultimate intention. That's where all of this is going, that the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But though that day is coming... In another sense, that day is already here. How do we know that? Because in John chapter 1 verse number 14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means he made his tabernacle among us. And in Matthew chapter 1, it tells us that his name is Emmanuel, God with us. So in the future age to come, God will be here. But by faith in Jesus Christ, God is already here. Emmanuel, God with us. So we live in this tension. The things that are coming are already here. And we access them by faith in Jesus Christ. The same principle applies to the idea of new creation. Now, the idea of new creation is not a new idea in the New Testament. It was prophesied about in the Old Testament. When you look at Isaiah chapter 65 verse number 17, you read about the promise of new creation. You don't have to turn there. You can stay right there in John chapter one. We'll get there in just a moment. But Isaiah 65, 17, God says this for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. New heavens, new earth, The former should not be remembered nor come to mind. What is the nature of this new heavens and new earth? Well, when you get over into the New Testament and you begin to read the apostle Peter, he says this in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse number 13, talking about this idea of new creation. Here's how he says it. Nevertheless, quoting Isaiah, We, according to his promise, what promise? The prophetic promise from the Old Testament. We, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Why are we looking for new creation, new heavens and new earth? Because on the day that Jesus comes, he's going to overthrow the old world of wickedness, overthrow the old world of darkness, and usher us into a new world that is filled with righteousness, new heavens, new earth, where the presence of God dwells, where righteousness rules and reigns as Jesus is Lord over the nations. And we see that not only prophesied about and Isaiah, we see that not only confirmed and restated in the Apostle Peter's writings, but we also see that in the book of Revelation as John is looking into the future and the age to come. Here's how he sees it and writes it in Revelation 21, verses 1 and 5. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then he summarizes the new heavens and new earth in verse number five by saying this: Then he who sat on the throne, said, Behold, I make all things new. That's where we're going. But the amazing reality is that this idea of new creation was not just prophesied about in Isaiah, confirmed through the apostle Peter, seen and written about through the apostle John, the book of Revelation. But Paul writes about this idea of new creation as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes about new creation, but he doesn't just talk about it as a prophecy or as God's ultimate future. He talks about it as a present reality to those who are in Christ. Here's what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, we're all longing for the day when Revelation 21.5 is the full manifestation of the world. Behold, all things are new. But Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, the day that is coming is already here. And in you, old things have already passed away. And all things have already become new. That is Paul's central message when he preaches the gospel. It's not just a gospel of forgiveness and change in eternal destination. It's a gospel of transformation today because in Christ, old things pass away and all things become new. How does that happen? Through baptism. Baptism is the beginning of new creation. (laughs) Baptism is the beginning of this work. Where the old world of wickedness and darkness is overthrown, and a new world of righteousness begins in us. It begins in us. Why is baptism the beginning of new creation? Or rather, how do we know that? Let's go now to John chapter 1. You've patiently been waiting there, so let's go to John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse number 29 and read one of the accounts of the baptism of Jesus. John 1 verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Then John bore witness, saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven. And notice this phrase. Like a dove. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and He, the Spirit, like a dove, remained upon Him. Two key ideas. The Spirit like a dove, and that Spirit remaining upon Him. I did not know Him, John says, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending, And remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So there are different accounts in the New Testament, the baptism of Jesus at the hands of John in the River Jordan. But in this one in John, there's a special emphasis on the Spirit descending like a dove and remaining upon Jesus. And you got to ask the question when you read this, why did the Spirit of God descend like a dove? He could have descended in any kind of manifestation... He could have descended like fire and tongues like he did in Acts chapter 2. He could have descended like wind or some other kind of earth-shaking manifestation. He could have descended like power and might like to Samson. He could have descended like a still, small voice like he did to Elijah. Why did he descend like a dove? Well, anytime you see something in Scripture that is that specific in its detail, you need to dig a little deeper. And the way in which we understand the details of the New Testament is not just by showing up in the New Testament, and isolating that detail and saying, well, duh, what does that mean? No, we've got to sort of go back and listen to the biblical story from the beginning. The way in which we interpret things at the end of the book is we consider how they were introduced at the beginning of the book. For example, you show up in the book of Revelation, you see stars and candlesticks and all kinds of things. We don't just isolate those and say, well, what does a candlestick mean to me? No, you go back and you say, what role did candlesticks play since the beginning of the book? What role did stars play? And as you take that journey, Your understanding enlarges so that when you get to the book of Revelation, wow, God is now bringing the initial revelation into fullness. Same thing with this idea of a dove. And so when you consider where was a dove first introduced in Scripture... It will take you back to Genesis chapter 8 and the story of Noah. Of course, before that, we saw birds filling the sky in the creation account. But when you first look at the specific activity of the dove, you go back to Genesis chapter 8, the story of Noah. And we'll read just a little bit of that story. But it seems very appropriate to me that it would take us back to the story of Noah because the story of Noah is a story of new creation. It's a story where God, through the waters of judgment, overthrows an old world that is full of wickedness and darkness. Where the intent of man's heart is wickedness only. And God, through his waters of judgment, overthrows the old old world of unrighteousness, of wickedness, of darkness, and through Noah and his family launches a new world of righteousness. And the story of Noah is an important story because it's a template story. For the end of the age and the beginning of the age to come, where God comes through judgment to overthrow the world of wickedness in order to launch a new world of righteousness. How do we know it's a template story? Because Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, he's not just saying it'll show up unexpectedly. He's saying that story is the framework for how it's going to be at the end of the age. That judgment will come and sweep away the darkness so that the true Noah... The true righteous one named Jesus can come and launch a new world of righteousness. But, again, what role does the dove play in this story of old creation and new creation? Of wickedness gone, righteousness established. What role does the dove play? So let's read it together from Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse number 6. So it came to pass at the end of forty days... That Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters were receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. Notice that she found no resting place and she returned into the ark for the water's on the face of the whole earth. So Noah put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, a little bit later this time in the evening. And behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, now a third time, which did not return to him again anymore. So in this story, what, what role does the dove play? The dove is looking for a resting place. The dove is investigating whether or not The old world of unrighteousness is fully gone and whether or not a new world of righteousness has begun. The dove is trying to see if the waters of judgment have receded and a new inhabitable world has begun. The dove is looking for the beginning of new creation. The dove is investigating to see is it now time for Noah to come out of the ark and to begin a new world filled with righteousness. And the dove from Noah takes three journeys from the ark. And I believe the three journeys of the dove really parallel and foreshadow three significant journeys of the Holy Spirit from heaven to the earth throughout the narrative of the Bible. The first story after the story of Noah, you get the genealogy of Noah and Noah's whole episode with drinking the vine and then his sons. And, but after the whole story of Noah and his children, the next story in the Bible is Genesis chapter 11, the city and the tower of Babel. And I believe that story of Genesis 11 parallels the first journey of the dove. Why? Because it says in Genesis chapter 11 that God came down, just like the dove came out of the ark to see what was on the earth, that God came down to see the city and the tower that the sons of men built. And of course, when he comes down to see what they've built, he doesn't find a resting place for his spirit. But what he has to do is he has to confuse the languages and scatter men across the earth so that way they don't fortify themselves in their own sin, rebellion, and exile. So God scatters them across the earth and then his spirit ascends back into heaven. And I believe it's the first journey of the dove because there was no resting place for the Spirit of God to remain on the earth. But then after the story of the tower in the city of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, we get to Genesis chapter 12, where it begins the story of Abraham launching the entire story of Israel. And I believe in Abraham and in Israel, we find the second journey of the dove. Why do we find the second journey of the dove? Well, consider this. When Noah sends out the dove the second time, it says that she came back in the evening, which means that the dove, for a day, temporarily, found a resting place. Where did it find a resting place? Well, the dove had in its mouth, it says, a freshly plucked olive leaf. That means it didn't find an olive leaf just floating around the water somewhere, but it must have rested for a time on an olive tree and plucked a leaf from the tree to bring it back to Noah. Why is that significant? Because throughout Scripture, God refers to Israel as his olive tree. Because for a time, the spirit of God descended and rested upon Israel and the tabernacle of Moses, the tabernacle of David, the temple of Solomon, the spirit of God descends and rests upon Israel, his olive tree. Why did he do that? Because the olive tree to Noah was a sign that new creation is coming. The olive tree was a prophecy to Noah that the waters of judgment are receding and it will be soon coming That you come out of the ark and begin a new world of righteousness. Because in Israel, we see the prophecies of new creation. In Israel, we see the hope and the longing that wickedness will not reign forever. But God will descend and remain among us and make his tabernacle in our midst. But sadly, the second journey of the dove is not the final journey of the dove. The second journey of the dove ends with the dove departing from the olive tree and going back to the ark. And when we get to the book of Ezekiel, what do we see? We see the Spirit of God, the glory of God that had rested on Israel in the temple. What does it do? It ascends and it begins to depart from the temple. And as the glory of God departs from the temple, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies, they surround Jerusalem. They destroy the temple and they burn the city to the ground. Because the glory of God rested for a time on the olive tree, but it departed from the olive tree and the waters of judgment remained. And after the story of Israel, what do we come to? We come to the New Testament where we're introduced to the story of Jesus. And in the story of Jesus, I believe we find the third journey of the dove fulfilled. Because when Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water, the heavens opened. And how does the Holy Spirit descend? Like a dove. And as the Spirit descends like a dove, what does John say? He said, I saw the Spirit descending And remaining upon him. Because the spirit in Christ didn't come temporarily touch and go. I'm here for a season. Now I'm gone for a season. In Christ the spirit came to descend and remain. Because in Christ new creation has begun. In Christ old things have already passed away. In Christ all things become new. And how does that story of new creation get launched? In the baptism of Jesus and his baptism in the river Jordan was a foreshadowing and a declaration of his real baptism on the cross. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till is it accomplished. In other words, his baptism in the Jordan was not his real baptism. It was a prelude to what was coming. His real baptism was on the cross because on the cross, he plunged himself into the waters of God's judgment for sin. He was buried under the earth, but he comes out on the other side being raised from the dead, breathing the Holy Spirit upon the church who is now here to remain for all time. The story of baptism is a story of new creation accomplished by Jesus and then we are given the invitation to step into that story how do we step into the story of new creation Jesus accomplished the work of new creation through his baptism and we step into that work through our baptism and in order to read about that we're going to go to Romans chapter 6 I'm going to be the The last passage we plan to read before we tie up this message today, Romans chapter six, we read Paul's account of the gospel of new creation. And he hinges it on the idea of baptism and his message about baptism is not just that you should do this to make public your faith. His message about baptism is that when you get baptized, something supernatural happens on the inside of you. Something transformational happens on the inside of you. That yes, it is an outward expression of a faith you already had. We heard that on the video because that's absolutely true. It's an outward declaration of an inward faith. And at the same time, it is a unique avenue of grace that when you are baptized in faith, something transformational happens. Or if you've already been baptized, you now have the opportunity to exercise fresh faith about what happened to you to pull its realities into today. Into today. And that's what Paul's describing in Romans chapter 6. He's saying, listen, you were baptized, but do you know what happened when you were baptized? And he is pastoring a church, and basically the undertone is he's telling them, you're not living like you were baptized. Because... If you knew what happened when you were baptized, there would would have been a transformation in your lifestyle. And so he brings to the table his gospel of new creation, hinging on the work of baptism. And he talks about the lifestyle transformation that's the result. So let's read Romans chapter 6. We're going to do verses 1 through 12, then skip to 14. Romans chapter 6, verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. I love the beginning of this chapter. Shall we continue in sin that grace may bow? Certainly not. And Paul begins to unpack the idea that the gospel of grace is not a gospel of becoming more cozy and comfortable with sin. The gospel of grace is a gospel that liberates the human heart from sin. It's a gospel that destroys the power of sin. How does it do that? Through the waters of baptism. So he's saying, once you are a partaker of the grace of God... It doesn't make you more comfortable with sin. It doesn't give you greater permission to live in sin. It destroys sin's power in your life. And he describes how that happens in the the verses that follow. Certainly not, he says. How shall we, who died to sin, live any longer in it? We died to sin, how do we die? He's about to explain how you die to sin. This is amazing. Now let me say this before we go on. The gospel of grace is much more audacious than we have ever given it credit for. So much more transformational than we've ever given it credit for. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a gospel of forgiveness, though it is that. It's a gospel of change. It's a gospel that brings transformation to the human heart. So he is claiming here that In Christ, you have already died to sin. I wouldn't believe it unless the Bible had said it. That's how audacious it is. In Jesus Christ, you have already died to sin. How do you die to sin? And that's the rest of his message in Romans chapter 6. Verse 2. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus... We're baptized into his death. How do we die to sin? He immediately links it to the reality of baptism. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in what? Newness of life. Why are we walking in newness of life after baptism? Because baptism is the beginning of new creation. So on the other side of baptism, we walk in newness of life for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this that our old man was crucified with him that the body of death but that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin verse 7 for he who has died has been freed from sin for he who has died has been freed from sin he He's not saying when you die, you'll be free from sin. He's saying you already died in baptism. Therefore, you're already free from sin. We're not waiting on death to save us from sin. We've already been saved from sin because we have already died through baptism. Because his death was not just substitutionary. His death was something we can step into and now it becomes our death. He just didn't die for us. He died as us. And when we are baptized, we step into the death that he died. And we're going to read it in just a minute. The death that he died, he died to sin. So when when you're baptized, you die to sin just like Jesus died to sin. Think about this. Jesus in heaven right now, the man who is living in heaven, is not tempted by sin. When he was on the earth, he was tempted by sin. The Bible says he was tempted in all points just as we were. But without sin. So he never came to temptation. But there was a temptation he had to overcome. In heaven he's not tempted by sin anymore. And if we have died to sin the way he has died to sin. And if we are alive to God the way he is alive to God. That means his resurrection life. Which is free from sin. Is now living within us. And we have the power to say no. When sin knocks on our door. We'll get into that more in just a minute. We're getting way ahead of ourselves, but it's just so exciting. He who has died has been freed from sin, and he's not claiming that you've got to wait till you die to die. You get to die when you get baptized. It's odd to say it this way, but when you go to a baptism, you're attending your own funeral. Because when you go in the water, you step into his death. When you go under the water, you step into his burial. But when you come out of the water, you step into his resurrection. You get baptized, you attend your own funeral, and you attend your own resurrection. <laughs> he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 8. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe. We shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And I love verse 11. It's one of my favorite. Verse 11 and verse 14, my two favorite verses in Romans chapter 6. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God. Baptism is the day of reckoning. Where you reckon yourself dead to sin. And you reckon yourself alive to God. Where you reckon personally in your life as a reality what Christ has already accomplished. So in other words, through his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ has already accomplished the work of new creation. And when you get baptized, you reckon that reality as a personal reality. Not just something that Jesus did back then, but something that is true today for me. Baptism is the day of reckoning. So Paul is saying, reckon yourself dead indeed to sin and alive to God. And then in verse number 14, he sort of ties up the whole argument and summarizes it like this. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What is the ultimate result of baptism? Sin does not have dominion over you anymore. When something has dominion over you, it means that it's your master. It means that every time it calls your name, you have to respond. Every time it knocks on your door, you have to open. That's what it looks like when something has dominion over you. It's your master. You are a slave to it. But Paul is saying through the waters of baptism, going in and coming down on the other side... Sin at one time was your master, but now it no longer has dominion over you, which means it, it doesn't mean that sin will never call your name. It just means when it does, you don't have to respond anymore. Yeah. Means that when temptation knocks on your door, you don't have to open the door. Why? Because the grace of God interrupts the bondage of sin in our lives. And it takes us through the marvelous work of Jesus, and out on the other side, we are set free, and sin no longer has dominion over us. Romans chapter 8 says it like this, we are no longer debtors to the flesh. New Living rephrases it and describes it like this, you have no obligation whatsoever to do what your sinful nature is telling you to do. Why? Why? Because the law embodied a commandment. But it did not extend the power of transformation so you could obey the commandment. But Jesus comes not full of law but full of grace and truth. And when Jesus reveals a truth, a commandment for us to walk in, His grace sets us free to obey. And that's the gospel of new creation that Paul preaches. In Christ, old things. Rebellion, disobedience, darkness. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. One of my favorite moments in John chapter 1 is when John the Baptist says this. He says, for this reason came I baptizing with water, that he, Jesus, may be revealed to Israel. In other words, the idea is this. Until they get baptized, they can't see him the way that God wants, him to see, God wants them to see him. Why? Because their eyes, their ears, their hearts are blinded by sin. So John is saying, I came baptizing with water so they could see him. So he could be revealed to them. So they could encounter and experience God in a way they never have before. And listen, one of the reasons why God hates the sin that ensnares us is because it blinds us from seeing Him. It strips us of our ability to hear Him. So even as we've been declaring this morning this gospel of new creation, of grace, and the power of God to set us free from sin, yes, there are eternal implications involved in this gospel. There's also present implications involved in this gospel. Why does God want you set free from sin? So you can see Him the way you never have. So you can hear Him in a way that you never have. Maybe this morning that you're here or you're listening to this message on some kind of live stream or some kind of video archive. Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You know what He's inviting you into? He's inviting you into this Romans 6 newness of life. That you don't have to live eternally separated from God. You don't have to live addicted and bound to darkness but the gift of god is eternal life and all you have to do is give your heart to jesus in faith you repent of your sin you turn your heart to jesus you embrace what he's called you to do and then baptism becomes an act of faith that says god i want to step into that newness of life that you have for me Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Grace Church Nash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.